Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenthood, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris. Welcome to episode 9 of Sprogcast, a podcast about pregnancy, birth and early parenthood. Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga at pinterandmartin.com. In today's episode, we're talking about Karen's second favourite subject, infant feeding. Oh, that's my favourite subject. Uh, in today's episode, we're talking about Karen's second favourite subject, infant sleep. I'm Mark Harris. And I'm Karen Hall. Coming up today, we've got a fascinating interview with Dr. Charlotte Russell from the Durham Sleep Lab, where I want to work. Um, We'll be chatting with our Strident student midwife, Natalie, and talking about some news. Um, And we want to update you with what's been going on on Facebook. We've had a really nice visit from a listener called Catherine Kitchinski. She'll hopefully correct me if I got that wrong. And she listened to a few episodes and then commented that she'd like to hear interviews with Naomi Kemeny and then carried on listening to some more episodes and found out that we had interviewed Naomi Kemeny. So that was nice. But we would welcome more suggestions of more people to talk to. Um, So just let us know what you think. Um, Come and talk to us on facebook.com slash sprogcast or twitter at sprogcast. Right. Do you you think this will go out, Karen, before Christmas? Sunlight. Who knows? Well, if it does... Happy Christmas, everybody. <laughs> Happy non-denominational holiday of whatever sort you celebrate. <laughs> we celebrate Yule. Yule, that's very pagan of you. It is, it's not so much about being pagan as about having a festival that's just for us. Because oh, family cool. pulls us in all kinds of different directions. And the three of us together sit down and we have a meal and we have presents on the 21st or this year, actually, on the 20th, because that's the Sunday. That sounds great. I'm, I'm just all for celebration. And, uh, of course, the nativity story lends itself to loads of jokes about birth environments. It does. And on my own Facebook feed, um, <laughs> I've been copying a couple of my breastfeeding counsellor colleagues and we've been uploading a, a Maria Lactans image every day. So a picture of Mary feeding Christ. That's good. And I don't know, a dark stable with uh, dim lights, warm, you know, it might be a better choice than a lot of maternity hospitals I've worked in. I can tell you I'm not seeing a lot of skin to skin. I don't know. What have we got in the news this week, Mark? Um, I, I think there's an article on, the, on our page there about uh, sexuality and breastfeeding and about this somewhat taboo subject about women experiencing you know orgasm in the context of feeding their babies and the kinds of implications that that has within their own sexual history if you like mm-hmm. uh, and the taken away um in the short term until the the case was dismissed yeah because she, she reported on a, a helpline that she was having these sexual feelings and just asking is that normal and the caller decided to report her to the local social services that was the bit that leapt out at me as as quite what? shocking i don't know what kind of helpline she called but you know you wouldn't call the nct breastfeeding line and have somebody report you to the authorities for, for a question about your hormones no you wouldn't and of course it's it's in an american context so and i think it was 1992 so it's it's quite historical but i I do think to have the freedom to be speaking about sexual arousal and breastfeeding is really really important i think i think it's an area that we need to talk about more because it obviously makes sense that the hormones involved with breastfeeding are the hormones involved with sexual arousal 
a Dutch study in 2006, it, again, it was 153 women, uh, 8% reported actually having an orgasm while breastfeeding. Mm. It's, it's the reported, you know, I, I expect it happens a lot, but people don't report it. And why, why you know, why, don't, why are we not talking about that? Probably because there's a response inside that says that this is wrong. Well, there's a basic confusion socially, isn't there, that breasts are these multifunction things where we can we can mention the fact the sex part, but we can't mention the the feeding part. But then when the two collide, that's just we don't know what to do with that. We all know that breastfeeding can be tiring, it can be painful, and it can be exhausting. All right. So if if there there was a link to pleasure at the end of this process, it it could well have an evolutionary adaptive function. But I'd argue that breastfeeding, when it works, can be very pleasurable anyway, even without any sexual element. It's it's rewarding, it's fulfilling, it's relaxing, it feels good. I mean, I mean, I mean there is a phrase in there, you know, human emotional psychology is tied to a hormonal experience. You know, and I, I think that's a mm. really interesting phrase. Yeah. It's, it's at the heart of what I write and speak about at the moment. Yeah. And uh, I, I think this, this the area of sexual pleasure is... Uh, experience while breastfeeding is something that just needs an airing there's some work to do you know I did an interview this week uh, with a guy called Pascal who is in France did you know they have uh, a breastfeeding rate of eight percent at six weeks in France I know it's quite low isn't it Uh, where he was terribly shocked by the lack of support to him as he supported his partner breastfeeding and he started a, a Facebook page aimed solely at men who are supporting their partners breastfeeding. I think he's a pioneer. You know, an, an area that we need, I, I think, needs opening up and exploring. Can I tell you my problem with this article? I need have one. <laughs> it says, since breastfeeding can be painful and exhausting on the female body, the act evolved to eventually feel good as a sort of reward. Suffering gives way to pleasure. That's yeah. working on this assumption that breastfeeding can be painful and exhausting and that, that that's just an inevitable part of it. When breastfeeding is painful and exhausting, that usually is an indication of a problem. And if you're just waiting for the reward to come along, it, the implication here is a basic misunderstanding of breastfeeding. So I don't agree with that theory. I'm kind of with you on that. And it does feed into the cultural frame of reference setting that the insidious formula companies uh, in their very sophisticated communication techniques seeks to set up. But, you know, it's no coincidence that they own uh, sore nipple cream companies and all this kind of stuff. And that's so deeply embedded that even somebody writing from a fairly scientific point of view is taking that as their starting point, which is basically wrong. So I've totally hijacked your article. You wanted to talk about sex, didn't you? No, I didn't. <laughs> I wanted, you know, but I, I wanted to t- just to get the subject spoken about. We have spoken. Good. Having those feelings that feel sexual in nature, you know, could be one of the reasons uh, that women stop breastfeeding earlier than they would if they didn't understand that this was this could be part of a normal physiological response to feeding and doesn't mean they're paedophiles and doesn't mean they have a deviant sexuality emerging in them. So that there's no there's no need for guilt. And it may also be one of the reasons people don't start the whole psychosexual confusion about it, plus potentially experience of, of abuse or anything like that, are all going to be a big factor in using that part of your body for nurturing a baby. Absolutely. Let's get someone on to talk about sex and birth. I think I think we should because it leads nicely onto that YouTube 
clip where you know having sex in the context of of uh, making a baby uh, is parodied in the light of what our current birth structures seem to look like and i found that so profoundly moving that i was weeping at the end of it so this is a youtube clip which we've linked on the page as we do with everything we've talked about it's just beautifully done oh it's lovely explain it first so that people know what we're talking about well a, a couple are in a room and they're beginning to be intimate there's the early stages of tender kissing and uh, you know the, the build-up of arousal as they are building a nurse and a doctor come in and they start going through an admission procedure uh, in much uh, the same way as in a lot of uh, doctor-led uh, hospitals you would expect blood pressure temperature discussions about the man's fertility and his low sperm count and uh, it it's for me it's an arresting video and of course it progresses uh, even to the point where he is uh, the, the male partner is uh, having sex with her they've been instructed that she's best off on her back uh, and the doctor starts coaching his thrusting and uh, I, I feel getting a little bit embarrassed but you can see the video for yourself <laughs> do you would you show this to an antenatal group I am bloody going to. I mean, really in two minds. I don't know if it's... Well, I'm, I'm going to use it in my uh, predominantly all-male forums as, yeah. as, as part of Birthing for Blokes. I, I think it might sure. work in an all-male forum. I'm worried about showing it. I, I felt that it would have the potential to create insight in a man, that he'll, he'll, gain, he'll have the opportunity to have an insight about how the structures that we're currently experiencing birth in seem to be totally... Um, counter to what would be really effective. Yeah, it, it, it's quite moving. It, as you say, it made you weep. Oh, and then for years, we've had the audacity as birth professionals to, to, to give people the label of this labour failed to progress. Mm. So the embedded assumption is that your body didn't work. Yeah. When actually everything in the environment was pulling against my body, responding intuitively to how it's responded for millions of years. I didn't fail to progress. The environment failed to support me and nurture me in such a way that I could be released to birth, you know, to birth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does lead on in a way to Millie Hill's article. So we've got this Telegraph article entitled I Want to Drown My Baby, Why Women with Postnatal Depression Don't Ask for Help by Millie Hill. Potentially our birth structures, you know, our formal birth structures have um, worked against this, you know, evolutionary adaptive process just outworking in such a way that, that more women than ever end up feeling like they failed. I, I say in one of my workshops that women are living it, in the felt experience of their story about how the birth went. Our current structures around birth are not facilitating when it comes to a woman um, experiencing birth in a powerful, enriching way, which could lead to this high levels of postnatal depression that Millie points to. Yeah, and she's got a, a good quote in here from friend of the show, Mia Scotland. What message is the woman being given when she's told she can leave hospital within six hours of birth and go home to an empty house with her partner? When she's told to get out of the house and have her baby weighed in clinic three days later, she gets the message that she should be able to cope. When I started as a community midwife, we would, we would be visiting at home 
far more uh, than we currently do. And that 10th day visit, which often would be a discharge visit, you know, when you were uh, discharging to the care of the health visitor, would be done at home, you know, and all of that. And now in many areas, women are encouraged to go to postnatal clinics as early as third day. Certainly on the 10th day, a lot of service happens in these clinics in family centres. Probably just a resource driven strategy. Well, I suppose one justification is saying that the, this is signposting people directly to where most of the support can be accessed and it's building a community around those women. But I, I do feel that it's putting too much of an expectation that people can be up and about on day three, for heaven's sake. Yeah, well, I've, I've not heard of that, certainly not locally, but I, I'm sure it happens. Family centres are a hub of much needed support and uh, there's a lot available within family centres. Uh, but but I, I fear it's a, a screen to, to screen the under-resourced nature of the service. Poor midwives are on the, the raw end of that, you know, having to, to cope in environments that uh, are very pressure-filled. Women are on the uh, raw end of an under-resourced maternity service on both sides of it. So we've got a quite a few sort of postnatal topics. Oh, well, I guess this is postnatal as well in some ways. The National Perinatal Epidemiology Unit's reports on perinatal mortality. Well, I think it links it links to everything we've spoken to so far because, you know, if you look at the increase um, of... Uh, I, I think it increases, carrying, you know, around suicide as, as a cause of death in the postnatal period. Yes. So, as you say, our criticism of this was the way the lay summary was set out, but um, the actual content is is very interesting indeed. Yeah. I mean, with regards to the lay summary, you know, I, I'm very into communicating risk in a way um, that visually shows the relationship of the risks to one another. And if you look at the summary, they've chosen to use the little shaded people methodology. Yeah. But the power of the little shaded people methodology is in the big group of a thousand being shown. Yes. So that what you see is in this big group of a thousand, you see nine shaded in. So you have the power of seeing, well, actually, this is quite a big group. And although terribly, tragically horrible for the people that and families that die in that group, you get to see the relative risk. Right. But when they do the lay summary, they just print the nine the nine yeah. shaded no context so, for those so you don't figures. get context at all so the way we communicate risk is very 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 important to me and i think the lay summary missed an opportunity there and actually seemed to misunderstand um principles of how to graphically present risk we talk about risk a lot don't we we need a discussion about risk in the broader context. You know, pregnancy is pre-framed by risk. You know, so we are moving hopefully towards talking about uh, women with complicated needs or something or complex needs. Uh, just taking risk out of the language might be useful. But of course, it doesn't negate the fact that uh, th there's no such thing as a risk-free environment. So is there anything else you would want to say about this report? Um, given the rate of suicide... Um, in the group and given Millie's article about half of women who experience postnatal uh, depression symptoms don't seek help that's a concern to me 
And, you know, Millie suggests that it's the idea of a perfect birth, uh, you know, um, that sets a frame for a woman to feel like she's failed inside her story when things don't go according to what's mm. considered the norm. You know, it's why I temper a lot of my responses to uh, Facebook posts that talk about um, uh, a certain type of birth as being the optimum. Yeah. Because whatever a woman experiences in the context of birth can be enriching and inverted commas positive regardless of how the birth unfolds potentially because this is to do with how supported she feels or how involved she feels and if what she's involved in is a a home birth that transfers in and ends up with an emergency cesarean but she was involved and cared for every step of the way that can still be a positive experience the power is in is in an individual's storytelling but the you know the story gets gets framed and influenced by those that are offering compassionate, sensitive, person focused care. Mm. The point being is that the institution is trying to legislate for for certain behaviours that are rooted in attitudes and personal responses. You know you you can't. It's very difficult to tell someone they have to be compassionate. Yeah, yeah, you feel it or you don't. You, you tell them you've got to be compassionate, but then you put them inside a structure that doesn't feel very uh, compassionate itself. That was the point I was making. Wow. Get in touch with us, and you can find us on facebook.com slash sprogcast or on Twitter at sprogcast. Coming up next, Karen chats about sleep with Dr. Charlotte Russell. So I'm Dr. Charlotte Russell. Um, I'm Senior Research Associate in the Parent Infant Sleep Lab at Durham University. Um, and I currently um, run most of the lab projects um, while the lab director is being head of the anthropology department at Durham. The um, Infant Sleep Lab has been in existence since about the year 2000, um, but the research we do predates that by about five years. Right, so you're quite well established up there in Durham. Yeah, we've been we've been around for a long time, and I've worked there in, uh, full time for about the last eight years or so. What do you actually do? It's the only lab in the UK that studies normal infant sleep, um, and it's one of two labs in the world that do that. The other one is in the United States. Uh, so we focus on normal infant sleep. Um, we don't look at babies with sleep problems um, or clinical issues. We focus on normal infant sleep, sleep development sleep safety, um, and we do research not just in the lab, but also in the community, in hospitals and in people's homes. It's interesting you say um, you, you focus on normal infant sleep and not on um, babies who where, where mm. there actually is a problem, because mm-hmm. I guess most parents coping with normal infant sleep perceive it as problematic. Well, this is one of the, the, the issues which we're concerned about, really, is that parents' expectations are crucial. Um, and one of the issues we spend a lot of time talking about when we talk to parents and healthcare professionals is about managing parents' expectations of their baby's sleep. Um, If a parent is prepared for the fact that their baby is going to wake up frequently over much of the first year, then they can put strategies in place to deal with that. But if they expect their baby to be sleeping through by, you know, a month or two months of age, they're going to be disappointed and they're going to find themselves battling their baby so so what we need to do really is to manage those expectations and help parents find strategies for dealing with them 
how do you do that? Well, one of the ways that we do it is by having um, a website that people can visit, which is the Infant Sleep Information Source, um, or isisonline.org.uk. Um, but we also spend a lot of time working with healthcare professionals so that they can give parents evidence-based information about normal infant sleep development. And a lot of this evidence is actually coming out um, of research which is happening currently. It's very new. A lot of what we think we know about infant sleep comes from research that was done in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and it focused on formula-fed babies and babies who were sleeping alone. And as anthropologists, we would say that those babies are not actually sleeping in a normal condition for human infants. The normal condition for human infants to sleep in is close to the mother or caregiver um, in the same room um, and to be breastfed. So we focus on how sleep develops in breastfed babies sleeping close to their mothers and we're learning all the time more about how um, baby sleep develops in those conditions. That must be fascinating. Can I come and work for you? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> This is my most favourite subject. <laughs> I'm a breastfeeding counsellor and I end up talking about sleep a lot in antenatal sessions and I find there's a real pushback against that kind of um, trying to manage people's expectations. Mm. It's either just flat disbelief because <laughs> mm. um, clearly I'm just some kind of mad hippie mm. and I want everybody to carry their babies all the time <laughs> or, well, it won't it won't happen to us because we will parent differently. It's, mm. it's the fault of parents. Mm. It's really hard. There's there's a long history. I mean, you know, in, in evolutionary terms, it's a very short history of trying mm. to get babies to sleep on their own and sleep through from a very early age. Um, but it is fairly well established in Western cultures. Um, and so, you know, the way that my parents put me down to sleep is very different from how I put my baby down to sleep. And, you know, it's it's a result of, sort of changing parenting fashions and you know increased knowledge um, about how how babies sleep and how we behave as primates and how we can expect our babies to behave as primates um, and it does take time to change um, those attitudes but I think that they are changing because I mean we have um, sort of organizations like the UNICEF baby friendly initiative mm. which do emphasize you know normal um, infant care practices as as babies babies as primates would expect them so times are changing. So if, if an, in an anthropological sense, normal infant sleep is babies close to their parents, mm -hmm. does that mean that um, the, the strong anti-bed sharing message is, is part of the problem? It doesn't tend to have a very, very good effect um, because babies want to be close to their parents. So mm -hmm. you're asking babies and parents to work in a way that um, works against millions of years of evolution and instinct. So when you're asking mums to put their babies down to sleep separately and you're asking babies to settle away from their mother, you know, you're, you're asking them to sort of override um, all the, the physiological and emotional and behavioural instincts that they have. That both of um, them have. Mm, that both of them have. And, you know, the, the baby that's put down in a crib on its own in the 21st century in a centrally heated house, which is nice and safe and warm, doesn't know that it's in the 21st century house it thinks that it's going to be abandoned and die of exposure or be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger you know it does it doesn't know that it's safe and it behaves um as its instinct tells it to and it and it calls out for its mother and it you know it asks to be rescued 
So that's what's happening when we try and put babies down and they object. Um, so you can either try and sort of override that um, instinctive behaviour or you can say, well, what does, what does my baby need from me and how can I provide it um, in as safe a way as possible? And the, the anti-bed sharing campaigns just focus on one very small aspect of infant sleep, which is preventing SIDS. And, and to some degree, that's fair enough because a lot of these organisations' entire purpose, uh, you know, is, is to sort of improve sleep safety. So that's so that's fine. But what it doesn't do is take account of those other um, needs that parents and babies have um, during the night. It seems like a narrow view that doesn't take account of long-term effects on the baby's emotional development. Well, there, there, and there, there are other factors involved as well. I mean, there's a relationship between bed sharing and breastfeeding, and we know that breastfeeding reduces the risk of sudden infant death syndrome. So um, if you can sort of promote um, breastfeeding, um, then you're also uh, helping to reduce an infant's risk of SIDS. And there are many other benefits from bed sharing as well, like you suggested, uh, emotional development and bonding and physiological reg regulation and better sleep for mums and babies. So you, there's a lot more that needs to be taken into account than just solely the risk of SIDS, yeah. which, which for babies um, of mothers who um, don't smoke and don't drink alcohol, um, and especially who breastfeed, is very, very low indeed. So, so you're looking at a very, very small chance um, of, of SIDS um, against um, potential benefits, uh, which may be more tangible and possibly more important to some families. Actually, that has, has reminded me of something that I kind of feel confused about, which is if um, if there is a, an incident with the baby in the parent's bed where the baby actually dies, is that necessarily SIDS? SIDS is a category of exclusion. So SIDS, um, by definition, um, is, is what we have when a baby dies and no cause for that death can be found. Uh, so people will look at the death scene, they'll um, look at the, the baby's um, body itself, and if they can't find any reason or explanation for that baby's death, then it will be designated as SIDS. Um, there's also accidental death, which can and does happen um, in, in parents' beds, um, and that might happen, for example, when a baby is overlaid or is um, smothered. So the baby gets um, its face pressed into, um, for example, a pillow um, and suffocates. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so yes, there are there are two, you know at least two categories um, of explanation for a death yeah. that can happen um, in a bed sharing environment. Um, but that you know there's there's a lot that you can do to make the environment safer. Do you have any statistics for that second category? There's there's not that much focus on it but a lot of the focus tends to be on SIDS and one of the problems that we have is that it can be very difficult to distinguish between a sort of the suffocation and SIDS. There may be no no difference in, in pathology um, or the death scene so when you look at SIDS case control studies um, there, there may well be some babies in, included in that who have died um, as a result of an accident um, but we just can't, we can't know that from looking at them. Yeah. So the literature is not always particularly easy to, to read with regard to separating out sudden un unexpected infant death or CD yeah. and SIDS. We very quickly got onto the bleakest possible topic. <laughs> <laughs>
What were we thinking? It is what people are interested in, though, and it's what people are worried about. That's true. And um, for me and for other antenatal teachers, I think being able to talk about this in a truly evidence-based way and confidently being able to say, actually, this is the risk Mm. and this is what's normal and this Mm. is safe for your baby or we can Mm. reduce risk in the following ways is so useful. Mm. I worked for one of the very popular parenting online forums for a while Mm -hmm. on their sleep board um, and got a lot of questions about this. And the health visitors working alongside me basically said you cannot tell people that bed sharing is an option Mm. but the problem then is that you find that people don't have the conversation about bed sharing and what happens then is that parents don't get the information that they need about what can make bed sharing dangerous and actually we know a lot more now than we did 10 or 20 years ago about the circumstances in which bed sharing um, can be dangerous for babies Um, and that's reflected in the, the new NICE guidelines on co-sleeping, which were published last year, at the end of last year. And the focus really is on now bed sharing in combination with other factors. And those factors are smoking in pregnancy or smoking postnatally, consuming alcohol, um, possibly consuming drugs or medication, which makes you sleepy, or co-sleeping with your baby on the sofa. And outside of those additional factors, there's very little evidence to suggest that bed sharing carries um, an increased risk of SIDS in itself yeah. um, to babies. But parents need to be able to have the conversation in the first place to know that they need to avoid sleeping on the sofa or to know that they need to avoid having a couple of glasses of wine and then falling asleep with their baby. And they also need to know that parents are likely to fall asleep with their babies whether they intend to or not. And, and our research that we did um, a number of years ago now Um, and has been um, borne out by other pieces of research elsewhere in the world, shows that regardless of whether or not they intend to, most breastfeeding babies will will sleep in bed with their their mother at some point. And about half of um, all babies will do that by the time they're one month old. So parents need to be anticipating bed sharing, even if they don't plan to do it. Um, And they need to be able to access information about what can make bed sharing dangerous and what the benefits of bed sharing can be as well. So it actually is really important to talk about it. Mm, Yes, we can't ignore it. Um, You know, if you ignore it, you find you you end up with a baby dying on a a sofa because, you know, the the mum is uh, trying to settle the baby at night and the mum says, well, I never knew it was dangerous to sleep on a sofa with my baby. And the sofa is one of the most dangerous um, environments which people are often pushed to because they're trying to avoid other environments which might be less dangerous. Yeah, trying to avoid mm. falling asleep with their baby because they're in bed. That's right. Yeah. Where, and you know, if they if they don't smoke, drink, take drugs, and, and if they're breastfeeding and they make the bed a safer environment, um, might, you know, be a perfectly reasonable place to fall asleep with their baby, particularly if the other choice is to go down and fall asleep on the sofa. Yeah, makes sense. Mm-hmm. So um, what... If if you're um, wanting to give a, a very straightforward message, moving on from the co-sleeping itself, mm. but about normal infant sleep, mm-hmm. what what is most important for par- to tell parents so that they they have realistic expectations? Well, people often say, "What is normal infant sleep in the early days?" and the answer is, "It could be anything." People people want to know how long their baby should be sleeping, um, and we have a nice um, chart on. Um, 
on the infant sleep information source and on some of our materials, which shows research, which, which looks at how long babies sleep at different time points. And it shows that in the early days, normal infant sleep can range from as little as eight hours to as much as 22 hours um, per day. So, you know, when a, when a parent says, I don't think my baby is sleeping enough, you could say, well, you know, it's probably sleeping enough for them. Um, and you can't compare your baby to your friend's baby because they're different babies. And infant sleep in the, in the early days particularly is incredibly variable. And the interesting thing looking at sleep development over time is that the, the amount of variability in the sleep which they have becomes smaller. So as your child gets older, it's likely to sleep you know, for, for a more typical amount of time, if you like. But in yeah. the, in, certainly in the early sort of weeks and the first couple of months after postnatally, um, there is no such thing really as a typical amount of sleep. Um, your, your baby will get what it needs. That's interesting. So you can't really talk about it in generic terms until the baby's a bit older. That's right, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you could you could say that there's an average figure of around 16 hours for a newborn baby, but it's completely normal to sleep less than that, and it's completely normal to sleep more than that. Yeah. Um, and trying to sort of um, push your baby in one direction or the other is, again, likely to be problematic in the end. And the other, the other thing which parents need to be aware of is that it's completely normal for babies to wake frequently um, for feed um, during the night. And even when babies are sort of up to a year old, it's quite normal for babies to, to wake and feed, especially if they're still being breastfed, which is great at that age. And babies can start sleeping for longer periods quite early on, sort of by three months, some babies are sleeping for five hours or so. But again, it's quite normal for babies to start sleeping for longer periods and then to appear to go backwards and start waking more frequently again. And that just appears to be due, due to developmental changes, um, which again are completely normal. And parents really need to focus on coping strategies. Um, how can they cope with those frequent night wakings? Do they need to keep the baby closer so that they can you know, provide comfort and help the baby get to sleep? Um, easier to feed more frequently um, and, and how can they deal with those frequent night wakings in the early days because they will pass you know uh, it, it, it will just take time yes I think most sleep situations are going to get better eventually you know the vast majority of situations will you know improve uh, and, and again whether you whether you look on the situation as a problem or not I think is, is part of the key and I think if parents are prepared to have a baby who wakes, I think a lot of the problem is that parents expect to get back to normal. Yeah. And what we don't really acknowledge is that their new normal is, is not going to be the same as their old normal. It needn't necessarily be a problem, um, but their life isn't going to be exactly the same as it was before they had a baby. And, and people tend to want to get back, or some people need to get back to work, some people want to get back to their daily routine. They have other kids to look after. You know, they have um, a, a life to lead and they, they want to get back to how they were before they had that baby as soon as possible. But that's not a realistic expectation. Yeah. And, and you need to expect that your baby is going to have um, certain um, patterns of waking and sleep which don't necessarily fit into what you would like your patterns of waking and sleep to be at least for a few months. Yeah, I think that um, expectation of getting back to normal is, is a real, really interesting one because as soon as you announce you're pregnant, everyone tells you that you're never going to sleep normally mm. again. Mm. But you still go into this with a certain amount of denial. 
Mm. Well, and and again, you know, you're you, you just develop a new normal, and you know, I, I think it's I don't think that people need to anticipate that they will never sleep well um, again. I think that they just need to to understand and expect to sleep differently. Uh, for example, when I had my child um, and I went back to work, um, I did bed share and, and um, you know kept my baby close and it was one of the ways that I actually maximised the amount of sleep I, I got um, and also my contact with her and it was lovely because I was out at work all day and, uh, and I was able to come back and spend all night in contact with my you know then eight months old baby yeah. <laughs> so yeah, she, you know I was lucky to, to not have to go back to work until she was eight months but um, but I never really felt like I was struggling for sleep because I wasn't having to get up in the night and you know settle a fractious uh, infant so it's a case of making life work for you I think yeah whatever you can to maximize the mm. the okay. rest that you get yeah more than anything else can I ask you about um, I'm hearing lots lately about various devices and gadgets that are supposed to mm-hmm. um, make the baby sleep like including you and the sheep um, <laughs> other white noise apps the sleepy head and other mm things like that. Is there any research yet showing that these either work or that they're safe? In a word, no. The majority of um, infant care products, possibly all of them, will have some sort of safety testing, but it's more likely to do with the materials that they're made of and whether, for example, they are fire retardant and really nothing to do with whether or not they're they're safe in terms of infant sleep safety and SIDS, uh, which is, of course, what everyone is concerned about. Um, the issue with things that you put in people's beds and things that you put in babies' cots um, is that if they're soft, they could pre- present um, a suffocation hazard to the baby. And one of the issues that I have with um, sort of inserts that are put in, in parents' bed, and, and I've seen quite a few of these, are sort of like soft nests that you put yeah. the baby in and then put the baby in the bed. Um, I have two main concerns with those. One one is that they tend to be made of soft materials, so it'd be quite easy for the baby if the baby comes out of them for any reason to end up being wedged up against them um in the bed. Um and also they limit the ability of a baby to communicate with its mother. And the years of research that we've done in the sleep lab watching mums and babies sleep together, we do see babies get the covers you know, up over their head or, you know, the mother's arm resting over the baby's body. But what happens in, in every case that we've seen is the baby either removes the cover itself or it, it sort of, you know, nudges the mum, waves its arms about, and the mum wakes up and she moves it. Yeah. Um, so if, you, if the baby is being separated from its mum and can't communicate, then I would be concerned about that. It's a little bit like putting a, um, a a baby who's swaddled in a bed. You know, I'd be very uh, would certainly would discourage that as well because again, the baby can't communicate. Yeah. Um, and and would also be at risk of overheating in yeah. that situation. So manufacturers need to provide a certain level of safety assurance for their pro- products, but that doesn't extend to whether or not they're actually safe in terms of um you know sudden infant death syndrome or accidental death actually for that matter. And no. Um, manufacturers that I know of actually have their 
products tested for that. No, and I suppose until incidents happen, there's mm. no data. I mean, we, we have done some research in the lab um, looking at bedside cots and also um, sleeping bags without any, any funding because we think it's important to look at these products which are being marketed to parents. And parents are exposed to a huge amount of marketing. And a lot of this marketing is, is has a sort of a safety focus as well, you know. Yeah. And we're told you need this so that your baby won't get too warm or you need this because it's, you know, got marvellous airflow in it, you know, for your baby. And, and I, I'm not entirely sure how manufacturers can... Um, support those claims because as far as I know they never do any research into it Uh, and so we try and actually do that research in the lab um, as we can. So what has the lab found about sleeping bags? We had a master's student who did her study looking at sleeping bags and one of of the things that we were looking at was um, how they worked in terms of temperature regulation because one of the claims for sleeping bags is that they help keep your baby at a safe and stable temperature and that they're less likely to get the covers over their head. So we compared sleeping bags with traditional blankets um, and we found absolutely no difference in any of the parameters we looked at. We found no difference in temperature. We found no difference in sleep quality um, for mother or infant. And so we, we concluded from that, which is quite a small study, but it's a, you know, it a sound study, that parents should use what they are happy with. Yeah. Uh, and as long as they use it sensibly and make sure that babies aren't getting too warm um, and that they're t- tucked in properly and so on and so forth, um, we didn't find any particular reason to to favour one or the other. That's very interesting because they are one of the things, aren't they, that everybody mm. must have. And that's right. <laughs> and that's the theory being that you don't have to take the baby out of their bedding when you pick them up for night feeds. They're convenient. The one thing that I would caution about, though, is that if you do bring a baby in the system bag into bed, you need to make sure that baby doesn't end up under your duvet as well because yeah. it's easily done and, uh, you know, a baby in a sleeping bag um, really does collect the heat because it's, a, you know, there's very little sort of opportunity for heat to escape from the sleeping bag. So if it's also under an adult duvet, um, then that could um, could be quite, quite a warm environment for it. So just yeah. be cautious about that. Is there any research on white noise? Not that I've come across. I've come across some research which which focuses on you know dangerous levels of of white noise and and, and noise at, but uh, I, it's not something that we've particularly looked into. I think probably um, the interesting interesting thing from our point of view about these noise apps which are used for babies is that what they're doing is preventing the baby from being exposed to an abnormally quiet environment. And often parents will try and get their baby, you know, they focus on a quiet, dark room for the baby to sleep in. And and that's really a, not a particularly a sensible thing to condition your baby to need, I don't think. Because yeah. if you, many babies um, will sleep better if they're in a, in a noisier environment because they know they're safe, they know that they're near their people. Um, and if they're in an unnaturally quiet environment, actually they, they may struggle to sleep and if you succeed in conditioning your baby to need that quiet dark environment then when you're you know when you're all of a sudden you want to go to a, uh, a party you know or you're yeah. on holiday or you know you're, you're, something's going on and um, then you you suddenly find that you can't get your baby to sleep so there's nothing wrong um with having a baby who's quite happy to settle down amid the family you know of an evening and go to sleep downstairs as long as it's in a safe place uh, and actually, that's quite a good thing. Um, but what I think these apps are doing, um, to get back to your question, 
um, is I think that they're sort of providing that, you know, sound stimulus so that the baby doesn't get worried by an abnormal silence. But that's yeah. just my hypothesis. Yeah, no, that, that's what I assume they're doing as well. Mm. And and just recreating the normal, mm. which you could probably do without the app. There was, yeah, there was a very um, famous um, comment made by Jim McKenna, who um, works in the States on similar issues to us. Um, and he was asked about um, baby monitors, uh, the old-fashioned kind, you know, not the ones with videos and um, breathing um, monitors, but the old-fashioned kind that just did sound and, and whether they were useful. And he said the only possible use that he could see for them really would be to reverse them, turn them round, so that the baby was getting the sound of the parents uh, from <laughs> its end of the monitor, because uh, as far as he was concerned, that would be far more useful from the baby's point of view, from an evolutionary point of view, yeah. um, than having the parents be able to hear. So is there anything else that you think um, would be useful um, to to include today? I think we've pretty much covered uh, most of the key points. I think if if you if your listeners want to um, find out more about um, infant sleep, they can go to our website. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we cover all sorts of sleep topics on there. We cover normal infant sleep, sleep safety, SIDS, bed sharing. Um, but we also cover more sort of niche topics like um, twin twin bedding, twin sleep and co-sleeping, which is <laughs> a question in itself. Um, and we have various other um, resources which are available on that as well. So there's a lot to read about on that. And we, we reference um, all the research as well that we base what we say on. Yeah, um, it's so a great website. I use it all the time. Thank you. <laughs> That's great to hear. Okay, thank you very much for talking to us, Charlotte. Do you want to give the website address again? Yes, it's www.isisonline.org.uk. Great. So that's the place to go for information, for evidence-based information about normal infant sleep. That's right. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. I thought she was amazing, Karen. I really enjoyed chatting with her. It's really useful stuff. I mean, I, I think everyone should have listened to that because it's it's really good, basic. This is how babies are like. This is the, the the range of challenges that parents encounter. And I just felt that it backed up everything that I say, which I really liked. I like to be affirmed in my work. <laughs> yeah, you're also willing to challenge your... your, your um... Uh, deeply held views and I kind of respect that about you a bit <laughs> no you are you are you you're willing to challenge mine yeah <laughs> I think being willing to challenge my own would be more respectable <laughs> I you know I, I I've recently been dipping into sweet sleep yeah um which is a awesome resource and I know our sponsor publishes it but that's not why I'm mentioning it I I, I think this you know every doula Every person involved with supporting, you know, uh, women in any way, shape or form should be buying this book or getting getting uh, access to it because it in a, a, a neat it's a big book, but it neatly um, kind of has summations of its key points. It is. And it's very accessible, isn't it? It's well produced. It's nice to have it in your hand. Um, but 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 this would be a remedy to all those uh, dubious resources that are out there.
Yes, so that's um, Sweet Sleep by La Leche League, isn't it? It's, it's one right. of the. It's a group of authors from La Leche League, published by Pinter and Martin. Um, quite heavy, as you can hear. Mark is slamming it down on his table. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> um, uh, my Bible, when I was working for Netmums on the sleep form, I had it beside me all the time, and it's got loads of little post-it tabs in it for when I wanted to look up a particular thing. The yeah. one objection, um, Netmums wouldn't list it on their recommended reading because they felt that the suggestions in the book about co-sleeping with a newborn went against um, Department of Health guidance. Well, although it falls in line with um, Charlotte Russell. It does, doesn't it? The uh, history of the sleep lab there is, is quite a long one. I was very impressed um, with their approach to dealing with the issues. And it, it doesn't get much more evidence-based than that. No, well, I, and I, you know, I'm the big fan of the evidence, though, Mark. No, me too. <laughs> no, I'm a lover of evidence. I just don't believe it. I, it's not to be believed, Karen. It's, it's to not be, to be believed. It's, it's to, to be, be tested. It's to be tested. I'm going to draw your attention to an article that I've linked I don't know what this is, News Talk ZB. Um, where is that from? Oh, it's New Zealand thing. China targeted with new wonder infant formula. China is set to be a target market for potential wonder food to help infants sleep through the night. Goodness. To stop them waking up hungry. And um, the particularly fascinating claim here um, that the science director professor from the company that makes this milk, we know that it's high quality. We know that we manufacture and produce it better than just about anywhere else in the world. But what we need to do is try and create food that really sings health to the rest of the world. Well, as, as a human species, we're, we're, we're now discovering um, that biorhythms and, and our sleep patterns have been really affected by an industrial age, by electric lighting. You know, and the seasons of the year are a clue to us as to how as uh, mammals, you know, as animals on this planet, you know, we're not exempt from those rhythms that have uh, been guiding our lives and experience for many millions of years. And, uh, you know, a lot of sleep problems in adults are related to our rhythms being out of cadence. As Charlotte said, this, the, the whole social expectation of your good baby, in inverted commas, who sleeps through the night, this is um, a, another gadget device thing on the market aimed at parents to make their babies do something unnatural well our babies will you know I, i've supported many breastfeeding women over the years and when we had four bedded well we still have four bed units uh, in maternity hospitals and when women were postnatal you'd have one make woman breastfeeding whose baby was responding like a mammal would through the night and then you'd have a number of others that were that were formula feeding and you'd have a midwife mi maybe a midwife well-meaningly say well if you give the baby a top up it will sleep for longer Just and like those other ones. Uh, yeah yeah exactly so and it's not rocket science is it you know the, the milk sits longer in the stomach giving the giving the the appearance of, you know satiation over a longer period because it's taking longer to digest and the implications to the mother are you know i've been starving my baby because suddenly the baby's sleeping longer yeah plus yeah, and, what, what about that expectation to be able to cope Exactly. How much easier is it to cope if your baby is sleeping for long periods? Exactly. And I'm not a big kind of devotee of this naturalistic fallacy no. where by anything natural is good and anything unnatural is bad. I don't believe that at all. And I don't even no. believe that formula is a bad thing because there are very, very important reasons for using it in, in some cases. But, um, you know, chicken pox is natural. 
and that's not good for anybody. Can't give a, a value a value to um, natural versus unnatural. But when we're talking about sleep, if if this is how a, a baby's body and brain are adapted to sleep and you're trying to interfere with that, then there are risks associated with that. But also it's making your life very much more complicated. These things, we speak about them in a micro way, but they have macro, there are macro implications. You know, a a lot of women these days are are in two income families. You know, we're going back to work and all that kind of stuff becomes an immense pressure. Motherhood generally is totally undervalued in our society. So, you know, choosing to make certain choices about being at home for longer periods of time is kind of um, looked down upon in large portions of our society. It is in some ways, but I guess we could also say that um, the two-income family or being at work or having your career is a pressure, but it's also maybe a priority. Well, yes. So we've got one last article to have a look at. This is um, from back in March this year by Anna Pease in The Guardian, and it's entitled Bed Sharing with Babies, Is It Safe? Now, I don't want to have the same conversation again that I had with Charlotte, but I just wanted to draw people's attention to this because it is a good, well-argued piece. Right. I have no comment to make. I'm sure it is. I haven't really read it. (laughs) Thanks, Mark. (laughs) I think that for me, the, the crux of it is that the conversation has to be had like you've said with various other topics today this isn't something you can sweep under the carpet and we don't want to sweep element the sexual elements of breastfeeding or the experience of postnatal depression under the carpet we need to talk about bed sharing charlotte said um half of parents will have their baby in bed with them at some point in the first month you know that's huge number of babies in bed with their parents a whole bunch of health professionals saying, don't do this, let's not discuss it, but don't do it. Yeah. Um, and this this strong message that it's it's a terrible thing to do. I, it, do you know, it's an example of blanket recommendations being given out by health professionals. You know, we, we know that, uh, that actually um, there is a significant number of women that got out of bed to feed and falling asleep on the sofa was far more dangerous than falling asleep in the bed. Yeah. So this blanket advice to not sleep with the baby might have been contributing to um, terrible outcomes. It might have been. And even without that, I mean, I can remember getting up and going downstairs with my baby to feed him. And I was miserable, tired and lonely. And if I'd been able to stay snuggled up in bed because I felt like that was okay, which eventually I just figured out for myself. Hooray. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been a bit nicer. Well, all five of my biological children slept with us for quite a long period while my partner, my late wife, was breastfeeding. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, yeah, we've spoken about it before. There are cultures that encourage uh, co-sleeping and seem to have lower rates of SIDS. Yes, I didn't talk to Charlotte about that. Right, now let's check in with uh, Karen calls her a strident third year student midwife she calls herself it uh, who's been nominated for an award you didn't tell me this karen what award has she been nominated hey have you not been on twitter i haven't i haven't noticed sorry sorry uh, she's she'll tell us about it let's listen so i'm chatting to natalie again our strident student midwife hi natalie hello how are you doing i'm good thanks I hear you've been nominated for an award. I have indeed. Um, it's for the British Journal of Midwifery. Um, I've been made. I'm a finalist uh, for the Student Midwife of the Year 2016. Ooh. When do you find out? Um, there's an awards like gala dinner in February wow. uh, 
February the 8th. So, uh, yeah, watch this space. Do you have an appropriate frock? Um, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm too busy worrying about Christmas. But, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I've got one in mind, but we'll see. I might treat myself, you know. You should. Bit of a posh do. Bit of a posh do, so I might have to. That's cool. Well, we will look forward to hearing more about that. I'm just going to talk today about positivity because I've spent the entire year um, tweeting about it. And I think it's quite appropriate as we're coming up to the end of the year to sort of like round it up a little bit and sort of say what it's actually done for me. Okay. I started the year off sort of encouraging people to be positive because I found like so many people were tweeting not necessarily negative things, but it was just sort of like, you know, try to lift each other up a little bit. I started sort of just doing one sort of line a day and tweeting maybe a picture, a piece of art, um, you know, something that made me feel inspired or, you know, just something that was beautiful. And I thought, oh, that's nice. That's made me feel happy. I think I did it every day for 120 days. At seven o'clock in the morning, I did it every day at seven o'clock in the morning, which what that was it. I was sort of challenging myself to see if I could think of something positive every day at seven a.m. Um, and I managed to do that. Um, and then it sort of it sort of overspilled into my life really, and I found that I was looking for things to be positive about all the time, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm not saying that I'm like the most happiest person on the planet or anything. It and does I, make I don't you sound a bit Pollyanna. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I know, obviously, I, I you know I have lots of negative things that happen, and you know everybody has bad things that happen, and and especially when you're sort of you know trying to um, train in, in in a career such as midwifery, you know you have high days, you have low days, um, but I sort of thinking you know I need to find some positive in in all the things that I do, um, so that's what I've been doing, and the positive in, t- in terms of sort of social media, I think has worked really really well for me. It sort of brought things to me, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. It's a great platform for that. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, I found you, so I mean, that's that was a positive thing, wasn't it? Yeah, and thank I you. Found, yeah, I found you through social media. Um, you know, I found sort of Mark through social media. Yeah, I found Mark on Twitter as well. Yeah, and so I think that you know, you find other positive people. It's almost like that weird thing of like finding your tribe. Yeah, you, know, you you find other people that are as positive about things as you are. And, and it really, really helps. And then I started looking at sort of the actual psychology of it because I'm a little bit like that. I found this broaden and build theory right. by a person called Fredrickson. Very, very interesting. Sort of saying that if you have positive emotions, you broaden your sense of possibilities and you sort of open your mind a little bit. And then you will end up finding value in lots of areas of your life that maybe you didn't find before. So, like, the little things turn into things that, you know, keep your happiness, basically, keep you positive. Right. So, um, yeah, so I've been going with that. Does that make sense? Yes, it sounds great. And, and have you had much sort of feedback from people about whether you're affecting them? Well, yeah, I mean, through Twitter, definitely. I get a lot of sort of people sort of drawn to me because of the positive side of it sort of saying, you know, um, you know, you always find a good thing, you always find a positive thing. I've managed to sort of like write um, co-blogs with um, a man called John Walsh. He's an NHS manager up in Leeds. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's been really good because obviously he's he, he likes to do things about life and about how we sort of challenged in life and things. So that, that's worked quite well. So it, people are positive because I'm positive. So I think that's, you know, that's been really great. And obviously we got, we, um, myself and Rachel went to speak at conferences in July and um, uh, we did the RCM conference and that was about positivity, you know. 
So that's been, been been good as well. And I tend to find things in the media now that's positive. Like I try to look for positive, which in the world that we're in with everything being so negative, that can be a challenge. Mm. But um, it's worked it's worked really well. Even sort of down to like I was reading about um Katie Piper, you know, the the lady who um had her ex boyfriend had that sulfuric acid thrown on her. Yes. And she's had all her face rebuilt. She got married recently and she had this beautiful article. And of course, it led with all like the horror story of her life. But also it sort of said how she'd found positive things to try and keep herself going. And I was like, wow, you know, there's, there's, that, is, that is, you know, amazing that someone like her is basically saying that's how she's carried on with her life by finding the little positive things yeah. to keep going. It's quite inspiring. Yeah, she's an amazing woman. What are you going to do in 2016? Obviously, I'm going to keep being positive, but I'm looking to sort of like things to grow, like things how I'm going to grow myself and grow other people as well. So I did a conference this year about um, called Time to Grow. It's all sort of about how sort of midwifery can grow and be people can be more positive and protonic is the word that we were using. But I think I'm going to look for sort of like other ways to help other people to grow and not necessarily just sort of, you know, um, you know, in academics and stuff, but in terms of themselves and how they feel about themselves. Um, Because when you're sort of faced with the challenges of, you know, of midwifery, sometimes that's what you need to do. You need to find ways to look after yourself and to grow. Yeah, I'm I'm seeing that on I'm following the Raw Belfast hashtag yeah. today and I'm seeing a lot of, of that from one of the um, newly qualified midwives who's given a talk. Yeah, what an amazing conference that is. I wish I was there. Yeah. But we can't be everywhere, can we? We've Box, got lives. Yeah. We've got lives and family. Yeah. yeah. But um yeah, I'm hoping next year and I've just I literally just tweeted that um they started one of the sessions with hugs. Oh. Everyone hugged each other. Oh, I love midwives. <laughs> I know, I know. But actually, you know, that's that's a great goal to have as well, to sort of like maybe, you know, give a person a hug that looks like they need it. Yeah. You know, we were so sort of, you know, we can be quite stiff and, you know, it's the, you know, it's the British thing, isn't it, to be really stiff about things and, you know, oh, I'm fine, you know, don't worry. But actually, sometimes people just do need a hug. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea to have a hug. You know, some people it's not, you know, it's not them. But, um, you know. That's your 2016 project then, hugs for everybody. Hugs hugs all around. Oxy hugs, I'm calling them. Oh, I like that. That's good. Yes. I'm offering out oxy hugs. Brilliant. (laughs) In that case, I wish you an oxytocin-filled Christmas. Oh, that's lovely. Many oxy hugs. Oh, lovely. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Full of oxy hugs for the new year. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Bye. My book's been shortlisted for some magazine book of the year. Fantastic. Hope you win. I'm not bothered. (laughs) Of course you're not. (laughs) I am. You're already famous. You've been on the radio with Frodo Baggins. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of my favourite interviews that I posted. Right. Now's the time in our podcast when we endorse. What have you got, Mark? Me? Well, in the light of everything we've been we've been talking about why perinatal depression matters by mia scotland now i want to endorse the book absolutely because i think it's a must read for for anyone who works in our environment a must read in my opinion should probably be on the list of every student midwife in the country Uh, but i want to endorse the work of mia scotland you know she's been working um in sexual health, in uh, trauma counselling for many years and now she focuses on the birth 
arena and the work she does is awesome so check her out you know check out her blog uh, get her book and have a listen to what she says i mean you've you've read a quote from from the book today uh-huh. and, and we've uh, interviewed her that's my endorsement all right, so that's Mia Scotland, her website, yourbirthright.co.uk, her book, uh, Why Perinatal Depression Matters, published by Goodell Pinter and Martin. Um, my endorsement is another podcast, um, one of our competitors, Mark. It's fearfreechildbirth.com. Oh, yeah, I was interviewed on that. Um, I, I haven't listened to yours. No, no, it'll bore you. Get enough of listening to you, but I did listen to an excellent one, and this is the one I want to recommend, which is um, her interview with Kiki Hansard. Oh, another friend of mine. She, she's got a new book out. It's called The Secrets of Birth. I'm just looking at it. The interviewer, Alexia, um, has a really good conversation with Kiki, and it, it's very interesting stuff. It's probably stuff that most midwives and doulas already know, um, yeah. but since this is aimed at parents or parents-to-be, it's certainly well worth a listen. It's good stuff. And Alexia generally, you know, uh, she, she's, she's someone who could do with support. She did um, a campaign about one born every minute and was on the end of quite a lot of vitriol. And, um, you know, it takes courageous, brave people to put their head above the parapet and get involved. And, um, yeah, it's a good po- it's a good podcast generally and worthy of support. Yeah. And she's absolutely passionate about positive childbirth. So that's my endorsement for today. You know, I'm disappointed to say that's that's all we've got time for this episode of Sprogcast. We hope you'll join us for the next one, uh, which we're thinking at the moment is going to be about hypnobirthing community. Please get in touch on Facebook or Twitter. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Bye. And it's goodbye from me too. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Editing and production is by Karen with technical assistance from Pete. Find us on facebook.com slash sprogcast.